Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Altmed podcast. Here with me today, as always, is my trusty co-host, Mitch Kurtz. Uh, welcome back, Mitch. <laughs> and um, sorry to just skip over that, but I'm a little bit more excited about our guests today. Um, live from the Cannabis studio, or at least Martin Lane is, we've got Martin and Reese Cohen. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very, thank you very much. The, the cannabis studio is is uh, makes it sound a lot grander than it actually is, but but, but we'll we'll go with cannabis studio. I like it. It's cannabis almost studio um, sounds like a that like a like a hot box. That's actually not a bad net. We should call it the hot box. That's a great <laughs> name for a podcast. Anyway, yeah. Well. Um, getting ready for a bit of a compression session with these guys today. Um, and as always, if you are enjoying the content that we put out, um, please hit subscribe wherever you are getting this podcast feed. Really appreciate all your support. Um, I'm going to let you kick off, Mitch. I know you've got a few questions for the guys, so fire away. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of territory to cover, but I think it's always nice to start with a little bit of introduction on our guests and uh, maybe we'll take it just based on the way they're sitting on my uh, Zoom platform here. So Martin, we would love to know a little bit about your background, uh, what brought you to cannabis and uh, where you're going at the moment. Yeah, so, well, very briefly, my background is in publishing, um, not in the cannabis industry, but I, I started in travel um, and then I moved into um, media and marketing, which were both kind of B2B kind of um, um, sort of publishing. And, and really the last sort of 12 years, most of my time has been spent running a, a B2B um, media platform for marketing and media people, um, which is kind of, you know, half an event business and half a media business, I guess. Um, I finished up um, in that business um, about 15 months ago. And the reason I, I kind of was intrigued by by the cannabis industry was, was for a couple of reasons. One was um, I was actually invited to go to Advertising Week in New York in 2017. And I was just blown away by how there was a whole stream of cannabis content there was you know the Madden brothers were on stage there was mm -hmm. um you know celebrity chefs you know obviously the the you know regulatory environment even then was very different in the US yeah. but that kind of got me quite interested in the industry and then the other thing was from a personal point of view my brother-in-law has got MS and he was prescribed Sativex which was the first time I'd I'd kind of thought about cannabis from a medicinal point of view. I'd always, you know, it had fairly negative connotations for me because of, for family reasons. Um, so for those, those two kind of reasons got me interested. And then when I looked at the industry in Australia, it didn't seem that there was the kind of media platform that covered the entire kind of legal cannabis industry. There were obviously people talking about very specific parts of it, but there wasn't anything that, you know, kind of covered the whole ecosystem. Mm. So so started cannabis, um, sort of started working on it early last year, and then we launched in July. Um, Reese joined us shortly afterwards, um, and yeah, going really well. Really, really enjoying it. Fascinating industry. Um, I, I think what what it reminds me a little bit of the travel industry in the sense that, generally speaking, this is a group of people who are kind of working together for a common good. So yes, there's competitive tension, and yes, there are things people don't want to discuss. Um, you know, because they're commercially confidence, but but generally speaking, everyone's really kind of been welcoming and wants the industry to thrive because that's in the best interests of 
ultimately the end, the end user, the consumer, the patient. Um, so that's that's quite a welcome kind of breath of fresh air coming from the media and marketing industry, which is a little bit more cutthroat, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, amazing. I, I thought you were going to say it's similar to the travel industry because people usually tell you about where they've been and then they wake up off the couch. Or, <laughs> and they haven't actually been anywhere at all. Yeah, I, I tell you, the other, the other thing it has um, in common, the other thing in common very quickly it has with the cannabis, uh, with, with the travel industry is you've got people who, of you know from a farmer background you've got people who are from a general business background and then you've got other people who are just sort of passionate about cannabis who kind of came mm. to it through that route and and, and it's a similar in that sense you got you know a lot of people in the travel industry didn't ever expect to be chief executives of you know publicly listed companies they were tour reps and you know they kind of made their way up through through that route so yeah there, there's there's a couple of there's a couple of similarities yeah, fantastic. And um, that leads on very well to Reese. a little bit of the background to the people who are experiencing you for the first time, not to say that there'd be too many, it's pretty, uh, it's not like you're shy. Um, so please, a little introduction would be fantastic. Yeah, thanks. Um, first of all, it's crazy to me that cannabis is, what, not even 12 months old, Martin, that blows my mind. But, uh, you know, um, you know, people have been around the cannabis industry for a while, we talk about things in terms of cannabis years which look like dog years like you know these things change so quickly so that kind of makes sense so yeah hi uh, so i'm reese um and i've been doing stuff in medical cannabis in australia for about five years now so um in a variety of capacities uh, mostly sort of as a commercial consultant but also doing other stuff here and there and yeah for the last nine months or so i guess um i've been the editor at large at, at cannabis and uh, it's been lots of fun. Um, so I, I have a big mouth and uh, I get paid for it. Um, that's, kind of <laughs> that's great. And where did, where did your interest in cannabis uh, kind of spark from? Uh, well, I, uh, you know, very interested in drugs from a young age, um, you know, like using drugs and um, really interested, got really interested in the, the sort of social relationships about drug use and like drug markets and how they work. And basically uh, my initial curiosity was about how you had this system where there were no rules in place, there's no regulations, and yet in Sydney, it's morally unacceptable to charge someone more than X amount for X amount of cannabis. And I was like, well, what's going on with that? So that kind of got me into it initially. And then I had the opportunity to study it at university. So I did my honours thesis on cannabis legalisation in Colorado in 2015. And then I was just in the right place at the right time. So you know, medical cannabis got legalised shortly after I finished my uni degree um, in early 2016. Um, and uh, so I've been, yeah, doing that kind of work ever since, I guess. Yeah. And you were involved, Reese, with the the Lambert Initiative at, at Sydney Uni and, and some of the research that's quite exciting that's coming out of there. Yeah, that's right. I, I spent about a year and a half working for the Lambert Initiative um, in a kind of project manager-y kind of role um, and uh, have, have, you know, made some good friends there, you know, have maintained sort of strong relationships um, with those people um, and, and with the organisation. So... Um, yeah, and you know they've they've been a, an occasional client of mine, um, and yeah, they do terrific work. You know, most recently that that driving paper that got published just a couple of days ago. Well, there's two driving papers that got well, one article and one paper that got published sort of within quick succession are both sort of you know Lambert uh, Lambert affiliated um, works. You know, that's pretty cool stuff. It's exciting. Well, I think yeah, that's, actually, that's... yeah, I haven't read that paper yet, but uh, perhaps um, uh, if I can put you guys on the spot have you had a chance to to peruse it and I, i've seen it 
being talked about a lot on uh, on social media channels. But um, yeah, what were some of the the sort of the key takeaways that you guys got? Um, I can feel this one, Martin. I mean, like you know, it's nothing that you haven't heard before. Um, it's <laughs> what's interesting about it is it takes a very systematic and objective approach to the current driving laws in Australia and how that relates to um, legally prescribed medical cannabis. And I think because of the very unemotional, objective, thorough approach of the paper, and because of the kinds of people who are involved in the production of that paper, so the lead author um, uh, is, is, a, is someone who is em employed by the Victorian Department of Health and Human Services in the Office of Medicinal Cannabis at Daniel Perkins. You know. So, you know, these aren't uninformed or um, these aren't external actors. You know, these are people within the bureaucracy uh, yeah. who are taking a, a hard-nosed objective look at the driving laws and conclude that there's no reason to treat medicinal cannabis differently to uh, any other legally prescribed medicine that we know can impair driving ability. You know, so I, th I think that was the main takeaway. Up from that paper for me. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's a, a funny one. Do you know what? I was thinking about this um, before we came on air, and just in the context of Kate Fairman and, and the story that we ran last week about all the all the um, drug um, tests that were conducted during Mardi Gras um, mm -hmm. um, last month. I I think this is a notwithstanding what you've said that that yes, a very sober. Um, kind of intellectual, rigorous kind of research paper um, is useful. I think this is a really tough one, the whole drive change campaign, um, because of the kind of PR kind of challenge that it has with government and with the wider public. So I think some of the things that, you know, you kind of, we've talked about this a lot before about the stories that you can tell, especially mm. around medicinal cannabis. You know, you talk about parents of children with epilepsy, you talk about people who, you know, are using, are using cannabis for their um, nausea associated with, with chemotherapy. Mm. Those are kind of really powerful stories that resonate with a wider public. I think the problem with driving is people just think, well, you shouldn't drive while you're high or, you know, you, you shouldn't drive while you're impaired or, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, drive if you're, if you're on certain medication that makes you drowsy. And I hear so many kind of that shorthand of, you know, it, this is just, this is, this is just unacceptable. You can't drink drive, you know, th there's all that. And, and I just wonder whether the government not, as I say, notwithstanding all of the, the, you know, the, the really good research that's being done, just won't have the kind of political will to do anything about it. Um, and sorry, and just before I stop that little rant, um, I actually saw last earlier this week. There's actually ads at the moment running on 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 TV that the New South Wales government is obviously paying for, warning people about the the danger of being stopped for drug driving. Um, really? So they're actually putting real dollars into sure. a real campaign on the telly yeah. right now. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, as I say, I don't, I don't want to be Mr. Doom and Gloom, but I just think that's a real, real tough argument. Yeah. To, well, it's not a tough argument to win, but it's tough to get any change. Sure. You might win yeah. the argument, but not get any change. It's interesting. So, yeah, I I mean, I'm kind of with you on that. Like, it's it's not an easy 
uh, argument to win necessarily, which is why it's it's necessary to to keep doing it. I think I think the drive change campaign is great in that its messaging is all about equal rights for medicinal cannabis patients and about drawing that equivalence between other prescribed medicines and cannabis medicines. I think that's the best way to to address that those objections. Mm. New South Wales is going to be one of the last states to take any action on this. We have some of the most yeah. foolish um, drug laws, you know, let alone cannabis driving uh, laws, mm. and our, our politics are just not ready for it. But I think I think Victoria is in with a shot because it seems like there is political appetite on behalf of government and other parties to pursue this. And now the the um, the the bump in the road is the bureaucracy and in particular the police and the justice uh, bureaucracies mm. but you know those can be overcome if there's sufficient political appetite to just make it happen um i, I so agree I with that we'll have to see yeah yeah i think yeah. as well it's an interesting point you raised um reese about how uh, one of the authors of that paper is is a bureaucrat who's involved in it um i know that there were quite a, a few bureaucrats that gave evidence in uh, the Victorian Parliament's recent inquiry into the use of cannabis. Um, mind you, Victoria, despite uh, Mitch and I and others liking to think that we're a bit progressive, um, we certainly trailed New South Wales on safe injecting rooms by about 20 years. Um, mm -hmm. That followed yeah, quite a, a myriad of, of various parliamentary committees in which um, bureaucrats gave evidence about how successful the room had been up at, I think it's King's Cross in Sydney. King's Cross, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and there's still been backlash, although thankfully, um, I guess the outcome-based policy has prevailed in, in this instance. And we're now getting a second room that will actually go in, in the Melbourne CBD. Um, yeah, so that's what's most needed. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, whether or not, yeah, the, the, the sort of <laughs> the, the real world outcome, like I remember actually sure. in New South Wales, there was a coronial inquest into some drug deaths at festivals mm -hmm. and there were, there were people, I think um, from various uh, bureaucratic positions that were giving evidence to, about how pill testing would be effective. And of course, then um, your premier Gladys Berejiklian um, was very quick to sort of say, well, no, there yep. won't be any of those being rolled out across New South Wales. So we're, we are grappling mm -hmm. with um, ideology of, of political leadership versus um, the real practical reality um, in areas across all different policy platforms driving. Mm -hmm. um, and we heard it today with Scott Morrison, but I, I'm sorry, I'm ranting a little bit yeah. here. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, on, but on, the, on the safe injecting room, I, you have a fair point, but keep in mind, the safe injecting centre and the cross was originally illegal. It was originally a an act of civil disobedience by people who would have been arrested and could have easily have been arrested and, and imprisoned for providing that service to people who inject drugs. Wow. And and it was only it was only the overwhelming, obvious, immediate, positive impact of that centre on overdose deaths in the cross at the time that sort of held held back the government from putting their foot down. And then eventually, after a few years, they sort of went, yeah, okay you can have one, you can have one in the whole state, but that's your lot. Um, mm -hmm. And that got enshrined in legislation. You know? So that's why we've still only got one after however many decades, you know, 20 years or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, drug drug policies are tricky, right? You know, and, uh, they come, to, they come in uh, fits and starts. So. And, and I think also, I'm just thinking on the driving. I mean, we've had ads in Victoria from Victoria Police saying, if you drink, then drive, you're a bloody idiot. But if you drive on drugs, you're out of your mind. Um, I can't really work it out because I think if you drive 
on drugs to an extent that you are impaired, I would also regard you as a bloody idiot. And equally, I would think somebody who is drunk, um, you know, is is out of their mind. But um, but yeah, we have there's <laughs> different ways that Victoria Police like to treat people who um, take any kinds of substances. And I, I agree with you, Reese. I think that the only way that this campaign will be won is is by giving or through the messaging of giving equal rights to all people who are taking different kinds of medicines. Yeah, but if you drink if you drink to 0.04 blood alcohol level and then drive, you're not a bloody idiot, actually. No. So that's there's the argument. Just, yeah. yeah. And I think that's what it's about. It's about moving towards a model where we have that same kind of threshold in place for THC. Obviously, if your blood uh, THC content exceeds, well, I, I don't know what the threshold, maybe Reese would be better uh, equipped to, to say, but um, a, a certain level, there would be a you know, a, a cause for concern, but, but um, certainly at the, the lower end where we're seeing people who have say a broad spectrum product, that's got trace amounts of THC, they certainly don't deserve to be treated in the same manner as somebody who's got a, a DUI. They're, just, they're not bloody idiots, are they? Definitely not bloody idiots. <laughs> You'd be hard pressed to say they're bloody idiots. The thing <laughs> with, the thing with, the thing with the, the difference between alcohol and cannabis or THC is unlike alcohol there's no direct correlation between the concentration of thc in your blood and how impaired you are and that's been that's been shown you know many times in recent papers so we can't hold out hope that we will magically develop a test that that tests the level of the per se limits like you know x nanograms per milliliter of thc mm. metabolites in your blood is permitted that's not i don't think that's a i don't think that's solving anything i don't think that's um what we should be working towards basically we have two options well, few options, maintain the status quo, um, reform the laws to exempt prescription medicinal cannabis patients mm. if they're not otherwise suspected to be impaired. Uh, and, you know, to scrap the whole, you know, testing for THC at the roadside entirely, which is not likely, or, uh, and this is a longer term option, you know, develop impairment-based tests, some kind of functional tests that can be easily and accurately conducted at the roadside which is also like not yeah like i say like not an easy one to fix necessarily so mm. like broader reforms to drug driving laws are very much a long-term thing in my opinion the short-term opportunity we have is for legally prescribed medicinal cannabis patients who aren't otherwise suspected of being impaired that's really the only viable win that yeah. we can hope for i think in the next few years personally how, how would you quantify impairment well, so, so, so if someone is stopped because they're weaving and they do a swab test, oh, you have the presence of THC, you're done, right? But that's not how the vast majority of people get done for uh, THC in their system while they're driving. The vast majority of people get stopped randomly at the roadside. So you're being stopped randomly at the roadside. It's not because you're obviously driving while impaired. You've been randomly selected and you happen to have mm. THC in your system. Mm. So if you then happen to have a medical prescription and that cops have no other reason to suspect that you're driving dangerously, they should treat it like any other prescription medicine and say, on your way, no worries. Mm. Um, yeah, but of course, if, if someone's, you know, running into parked cars and the cops come up and test them and they test positive for THC, yeah, that's an offence. That, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, and that's fine. You can maintain that while, while allowing legally prescribed patients to not uh, to not be stopped randomly and prosecuted. You know? So so what, what happens if, if you run into the back of somebody's car and they test you and you've got codeine in your system? Mm. Does that codeine in your system play into the offence? My understanding 
is that, and I'm not a lawyer, uh, if you can demonstrate that you were taking your medicine as recommended to you by a doctor and that you did not feel you were impaired at the time, then you have a very good chance of not uh, copying a charge. Mm. I, I don't know if it's a, you know, a perfect mm. defense or anything like that. Um, yeah. I think it but, comes back to that, that that point I was making at the beginning, and I, I should just clarify, you know, I don't didn't and, and don't, you know, intend any criticism of drive change. I think they're doing an amazing job. I, it, it was more about how do you create the political will for change? Um, and I think you're right, Reese. It's those, it is baby steps and it's those kind of wins that, that are going to get us to the to the end result. Because the problem at the moment is I just can't see. You know, politicians are deeply cynical people who, who who ultimately are interested in your vote first. And if there's votes in it, then then they're more likely to take notice. And I just don't know if there's enough votes in this. I, I was interested in what you said about, you know, if you're randomly stopped. So the, the 1,500 people um, who got randomly stopped in Nimbin or around Nimbin from Mardi Gras, how, how, how random was that? I mean, I mean, you know, the, the amount of money that gets spent on this is just, in, you know, just infuriating, really, especially, yeah. as I say, when I saw that ad campaign, I thought, you know, that, that this is... You know, this is not just indifference. This is proactively actually, you know, going out and and, and spending money and mm -hmm. on and and in uh, on enforcing the law and telling people that the law's there. So yeah, yeah I just think it's a tough gig that one. Um, yeah. yeah, but on on the flip side, wouldn't you expect that the tax revenue generated by cannabis would be something of an incentive to to the politicians to to governments in terms of especially when you're considering the kinds of debts we're incurring now with all these lockdowns coming live to you straight from, from Melbourne here. Um, but, you know, these types of things, you could see cannabis as, as a pathway to help um, relieve some of those financial burdens, for example. I, I've never felt, Ray, sorry, I'll, I'll let you Please. go on this. No, no. I've, I've, I've never felt that that argument really flies politically. Um, and, it, it feels to me like it's probably an issue where, you know, generally cannabis generally is, is an issue where politicians follow, not lead. So if you look at, you know, even countries like the US and states in the US, it's when public opinion becomes, you know, unarguable, that's the point where you get change. I don't think with, you know, with the exception of people who don't actually have political power, politicians without political power, I just don't think they, they I don't think that flies. Mm. I mean, tobacco, though, for example. Yeah, but tobacco is different, I think, because like the, well, well yeah, it's different for a whole number of reasons, right? Yeah. I think, I think, I think the excise taxes on, sorry, the uh, the taxes on, on tobacco are a huge money raiser for the government, which definitely is, is, a, makes it more attractive to pursue that policy um, to reduce smoking rates, because yeah, you get this huge cash bonus at the end of it also. Um, but they are, deliberately designing those policies in such a way as to discourage as much as they can tobacco use you know so it's not as it's not as if they are uh expanding access to uh to a consumer good so that they can generate more profit from it i think it's a i think it's an accidental opportunistic benefit that means they lean more heavily on the tax lever than the other levers they might be pulling that they also are pulling to reduce um, tobacco consumption rates so you know like the, the money they make from uh, from taxing tobacco can't offset 
the amount of money that needs to be spent on public health to 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 reduce to deal with the health outcomes of tobacco use. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but but yeah, I'm kind of with Martin on this. I think I think although obviously like you know legalizing cannabis for recreational use would 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 be would produce significant um, economic benefits in a whole number of ways, including taxes, but also you know like real estate and employment and that kind of thing. I don't think that's the I don't think that's the argument or even at the top sort of three arguments that we should be making about why we should legalize recreational cannabis. Because there's plenty of other things we could be doing, like not investing in building new coal-fired power stations. You know, like there's plenty of other examples where governments spend immensely more amounts of money on policies that are obviously bad for society, you know, because of political, moral, or social reasons. Um, and cannabis is a drug, drug policies are especially emotionally charged. Um, so I think we need to deal with how people think and feel about drugs and I think more even, than convince them that it's profitable to legalize them personally. Yeah, I think as well, cutting through, and I agree um, with both of you, and I think Martin, you're right, the political will needs to be there. And we're just constantly seeing that despite the fact that some five years ago now, um, since Australia first legalized medicinal cannabis, we still have... <laughs> I mean, the, the PMs, um, Scott Morrison came out today and said, uh, had a message for all recreational drug users in Australia um, saying that there's nothing social about illicit drug use in this country and that it fuels organized crime and fuels human misery. Um, I can think of other things that fuel human misery, such as offshore detention of children. Um, but I think more to the point, I, I mean, that must be seen by him to be a vote winner. Uh, he's doing that to, as a, I guess, some sort of populist policy. So mm -hmm. when you think of how remarkable it is against that backdrop that we even have a medicinal cannabis industry um, that has, I think, thrived and flourished in the last five years, it is in no part uh, with any thanks to the incumbent federal government that we have, nor indeed any of um, yeah, the, the senior health people um, who I, I think have been constraining it. So do you ever get the sense that with a change of government, we might actually really see things accelerate yeah, in the industry? <laughs> Reese had his thinking face on, so I was waiting. I was waiting for the for the pearl of wisdom. I, I'll, I'll just come back to my, my 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 previous point: is that you know, and pardon the pun, I just think is how much political capital are you willing to burn through for something? And some things are just you know really really important, and you know to to to, to governments, I mean, um, and and to political parties, and some things they're probably at best neutral on. So, as I say, I, I don't think I don't think that necessarily if we had a Labour government, they would lead on this any more than than the incumbents. And, you know, the Greens, unfortunately, aren't likely to get in any time soon. So I'm, I'm not sure that's the answer. I, I think I think the answer is it, it, it's kind of it's probably a, it's probably micro more more than macro. I think it's having, you know, conversations you know, individually and with groups and, 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 and sort of changing things from, from below, if you like, and you think about medicinal cannabis, that's how, it, how that, how that was driven. It certainly wasn't driven, driven from above. So I think it's probably going to be incremental, a lot of hard work and, and a lot of persuasion. The thing that I always come back to is if you, you know, you look at New Zealand and, and, and the campaign there, 
again, it was, you know, it was close, but, you know, that campaign got so bogged down in sort of my new shy of kind of, you know, not having, having, you know, cannabis shops near schools and really allowed the argument or, or, or started to had the argument on the turf of the no campaign. And I think you, it's difficult, but I don't think you can, you can have the argument there. You've got to talk about, you know, um, regulation rather than legalization. You know, this is how do you make people safe, not it's a free for all. You know, it, it's that sort of language I think you have to use in order to persuade people because, you know, you know, it might be 10 or 20% of the population feel like we do, 10 or 20% of the population, you know, are absolutely dead set and anti, and the rest probably don't think about this very often unless somebody speaks to them about it. So it's how yeah. you speak to them about it at that point makes the difference. The reason why, you know, usually, you know, the governments swing because people change their minds. Mm -hmm. We've got to change people's minds. Yeah. Do, yeah. do you think that's, I'm, yeah, no, you oh, go. You go. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I agree with you, but I think the reason why we have legalized medical cannabis in Australia is because medical cannabis is not recreational cannabis. So, Although they are closely related, obviously, like you know, and and it's hard to disentangle them a lot of the time. The reason why medical cannabis legalization was successful is because immense public support, public demand, and we're talking about sick kids. We're not talking about, you know, you and exactly. me smoking a joint after work, whatever, right? So the fact that it was framed explicitly and exclusively as a as a necessary medicine it slipped underneath all of that anti-cannabis um, sort of ideology and, and emotional sort of, you know, how people feel about, about illicit drugs. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's been why, that's been why it's, 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 we've, we've had it in at the same time as we've had continuing sort of, you know, prohibitionist sort of ideology and all other sort of aspects. Um, yeah. At, at the same point, what, are, what about um, the fact that this could follow a kind of American <laughs> model um, in yeah. terms of the estates legalizing first, in a way, like we already see it in ACT, for sure. example. Well, let's use... not forget. Let's not forget that you know Victoria passed legislation legalizing the commercial cultivation, manufacture, and supply of medicinal cannabis in violation of what were in in the absence of federal law and in violation of international law, which is what triggered the Commonwealth to step in and pass its own legislation. So you're 100 right. This already happened with medical cannabis. Um, you know, Victoria was basically played chicken with the Commonwealth and won. And that's why we have a Commonwealth framework. And maybe that can happen with recreational cannabis too, you know. Probably Queensland, I'd say, next. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, yeah, Queensland has gone from, because they introduced, they so Queensland, for people who aren't familiar, um, in 2017, uh, passed a new law about how to access medicinal cannabis. That's over 100 pages long. And it was like really intense. It was like, you know, uh, rules about, you know, pharmacists and the offenses that they could commit. It was like, it was, it was really cumbersome and you'd need a state approval to prescribe a schedule four or a schedule eight medicinal cannabis product in addition to a Commonwealth approval. Um, like it, it was a really draconian uh, and really sort of like over-engineered piece of legislation. And two years later, they repealed it. It's gone. Yeah, because they realized that 70% uh, of the population is probably <laughs> after work up there. It would explain a lot, sure. actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, they, 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 really, they really went from being one of the most restrictive mm. states in terms of patient access, literally just a few years ago, to one to now, probably one of the, definitely the most permissive and where the vast majority of SASB approvals come from. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah. 
it is crazy. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I can see definitely Queensland and potentially even WA. They always have this kind of history of wanting to do their own thing, I think, over there. And I, I know there's a few projects getting approved over there at the moment because they want to mm. definitely see it as a way. Um, I do want to steer the conversation towards another little uh, area that I've discussed with Martin already and yourself, Reese, and obviously with Andrew pretty much every other day um, around this idea of um, the, the other parts of the cannabis that we don't talk about as much. So beyond THC, beyond CBD, the quality of cannabis, we're finding more and more people talk about the entourage effect. They talk about whole plant extract. Uh, but what do we really know in Australia about minor cannabinoids, terpenes, these types of things? And when we're considering the quality of products and always the, the term, you know, GMP comes up in any one of those discussions. It's always about, you know, the, the, the procedural uh, kind of the procedure that each of the pharmaceutical companies has to follow in order to be the highest quality. We talk about this idea of quality in terms of what I would say sterility, whereas there is also quality in terms of, I would argue there's also quality in terms of the compounds that exist within the cannabis, uh, both, from a genetic perspective and the way it's grown. Um, because, you know, when we talk about whole plant extract, when we talk about entourage effect, it can only be as efficacious as those compounds that actually exist in the plant themselves, in, in the met final dose medicine. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on the idea of uh, sterility versus quality in terms of that full spectrum, quote unquote, uh, that gets passed around a lot. Um, do you have any commentary on that either Martin or Reese? I have some thoughts, but Martin, do you have anything you want to get off your I'm chest before I go on a rant? Definitely deferring to you on this one. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, look, I so a few things. First of all, the entourage effect is demonstrated in terms of cannabinoids interacting with each other. There's no evidence that I'm aware of in humans that terpenes interact in a meaningfully therapeutic way in the products that are available to patients. There's some hypotheses based on preclinical evidence and you know other stuff that maybe that's true, but I'm, so I'm not convinced necessarily. I'm open to, I'm skeptical basically is, is the right way to put it, I guess. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, and I keep an open mind of me or should. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, some medicines need to be sterile, right? Like depending on the patient, depending on the medicine, you would expect medicines to be sterile. So, I'm not against the idea of sterility in terms of the absence of, you know, certain levels of microbes or bacteria or whatever, because that may be necessary depending on what we're talking about. Sure. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of, uh, I think, I think there's some frustration about, you know, uh, some of the stringent uh, quality standards that we have in Australia about, you know, um, those sorts of things. And that means that a lot of cannabis flower in particular goes through gamma radiation. And yeah. We know that, um, that that does affect um, that that does reduce the the terpene levels in flower products and that may I don't know but may affect the therapeutic outcomes of those products possibly but these are all open questions you know I don't think we I don't think we know I don't, first I don't think I don't think I'm I personally I'm not certain enough about whether terpenes are therapeutic in that way and I'm not certain about uh, whether uh, you know, the level, the quality standard requirements we have in Australia are too much. I'm not informed enough. <laughs> I'm not a scientist, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I understand why people are concerned about that stuff and, and why and why they would be 
why some people will be frustrated by it. Um, but I think these are all like very legitimate questions that we should be trying to answer through through research and evidence. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's just my sort of feelings on the matter, I guess. Yeah, I guess the, uh, you know, assuming that you're, and based off the, the opening statements that you are a uh, cannabis uh, enthusiast, um, how, how would you describe um, the experience, you know, with different batches you might have come across over, over your, your years? You know, the, 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 the fact is that we do have, you know, you can say, well, that was a really shit batch of weed that I got or wow that was the most amazing and you know we differentiate it uh you know we have high times cannabis cup in America for example to to praise the best uh products that are or, or flowers that are out there or, or mm. whatever is available on the market and yeah. you'd imagine that that's not just all about the high you'd have to say that that would actually have therapeutic yeah it I would draw the conclusion that that would have a, a therapeutic side to it beyond just the 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 high that people are experiencing when they smoke it's entirely possible i mean look i you know the thing is humans are very good at at uh experiencing things at causing ourselves to experience things right so um you know because as consumers of cannabis all we get is what it looks like and what it smells like we of course would naturally assume that there is a correlation between the effect of consuming a product and what it looks like and smells like. It's a perfectly reasonable assumption to draw, but it's not necessarily true that those things are causally related. They very well could be. In fact, they probably are, but we don't really know that that's the case. Sure. You know, so, so, so given that that is, you know, given that, you know, uh, given that supposition before we, in my opinion, like if we're talking about, you know, what level of microbial limits should be permitted for medicinal cannabis flower in Australia. And the and if the argument is um, it's, it's more therapeutic if, it's, if we allow products to be made in this way, which is different to the way we're currently making that product, that needs to be supported by some kind of evidence Absolutely. about the fact that that is actually more therapeutic. And we don't have that evidence yet. And, you know, like, once again, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know. I don't know where the what the correct response to that to that is necessarily. And I think we should be talking about it and we should be investigating these things. Um, but I think the jury's still out, personally. I think there is emerging evidence to suggest that the entourage effect is is definitely at play. And it's certainly there's an overwhelming amount of anecdotal evidence that would suggest that that's the case. Whereas mm. you've got people using maybe 100, 150 uh, milligrams per mil type cbd isolate products and mm. then they try a broad or full spectrum product that is yeah. cbd dominant at a lower ratio that's that totally. works for them better oh please please don't get me wrong no i i i i'm more much more convinced that cannabinoids interact with each other in ways sure. that are that are synergistic right but terpenes are volatile chemicals if you ingest terpenes there's no possibility of any therapeutic effect basically is my understanding of the science anyway if you inhale them, maybe there's more of an opportunity for a therapeutic effect. Like, so in an, in an oil product, for example, having a full spectrum oil extract, yeah, that makes sense to me. Multiple cannabinoids interacting synergistically, sure. I could, I could very easily believe that that produces a more therapeutic effect than an isolate. Although there are, I've spoken with many patients and doctors who swear by the isolate product that they're using. So of course, of course, it's right. Sure, um, sure. But that's, but you know, if we're talking about ingesting oil, um, a, 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 according to secondhand information that I've heard from people I trust, terpenes, don't really enter into it. So you're Once saying again, non, non expert. Yeah. 
Yeah, but in terms of inhaling, that that could be a, a distillate that you or, or a vape type product that that could be. That that, could, that makes more that that seems more likely to to be relevant mm -hmm. to have terpenes. But once again, we don't know for sure if they yeah, are yeah. if they are medically relevant. Understandable. I think my my um my question comes from if we're sacrificing uh, that efficacy. Yeah. Um, in that full spectrum, assuming that the terpenes do play a role as well as the minor cannabinoids, if Which, we're sacrificing yeah. that efficacy in, in the pursuit of sterility only, then I, I think that is something that I would be um, not, not concerned about, but, but you know, I, I see it as a missed opportunity. Yeah. Well, the, the real, I mean, for me, for me, sorry, Andrew, what could, for me, like I'm with you, but from a different angle, maybe like sure. producing products to a sterile level, for example, producing um, isolate products is much more expensive than producing a full plant extract product. So whether or not it's more therapeutic, because that's a really difficult question to answer confidently, we know it's much more expensive. So if, the, if we understand the risks of microbial levels and if we can make a good case for, hey, actually we don't need to have it up here, we can have it down here and no one's worse off. Hmm. then yeah i'm totally with you let's 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 change that yeah um, and i'm not saying but, let's not make sterile products because obviously sure. if you can maintain both that's the that's yeah. the goal right happy days but, but there's, um, there's there's trade-offs yeah yeah absolutely and i think i, I know, think though, beyond the mm. sterility trade-off as well i i feel as though the the industry in australia which i know you guys are are obviously in that position of having a bird's eye view on on everything that's going on i still feel as though to your point, Reese, about the, the cannabinoid interaction that we know about, um, there is a focus on products that only deal with major cannabinoids. It's, and, mm -hmm. of, and we always talk about there's so much more research that is uh, needed and that is already happening um, in the field of medicinal cannabis. Um, but of what um, research is available, if you're a, a cannabis company, you're going to um, rely upon uh, what research is out there already and there's obviously mm -hmm. a lot more that's been studied of thc and cbd than there has of, of the other minor cannabinoids and yeah i think that in if i'm looking at a snapshot of where we're at in uh, in australia the the industry 2021 it really is just totally dominated by thc um cbd dominant um products or, or otherwise the the one-to-ones and i would love to see um yeah companies dealing with some more interesting strains um pre-extraction mm -hmm. and, and really um giving australian patients access to a, a truly full spectrum oil product that is you know um maybe or maybe not terpene rich um but at the very least <laughs> dense with lots of cannabinoids and i just think that i think there's yeah. a real absence of those products in australia mm -hmm. yeah and there's nothing stopping those products coming to market either right mm. like there's no regulatory or legislative barrier preventing a company that wants to bring a full spectrum cbn dominant flower or oil product to the market there's literally nothing formally preventing companies doing that if they want to they can yeah. and you know i think but i think that'll come in time right like you know like how many people in your life i mean that's a bad example possibly because we're <laughs> cannabis people right we talk about this stuff all the time so it seems obvious to us yeah. and it seems like things are moving slower than they should be most people that i speak to who aren't part of my work sort of like environment or people like who i've chewed the ear off for years about cannabis most people haven't heard of cbd or if they do they don't really understand what it is mm. so like having a conversation about oh so there's like 150 other 
random chemicals that may or may not be efficacious. Why don't we have those products on the market? You know, it's like- Big learning curve. It's a big learning curve, right? And especially for doctors, they're just getting their heads around THC and CBD and ratios. Oh, different ratios, you know? (laughs) Maybe they're just being introduced to the concept of like a full spectrum versus an isolate product. Um, Yeah, it'll, it'll be a while before they're ready to have a conversation about, oh, you know, CBGA or other, you know, cannabinoids that, that they haven't come across yet. Yeah. And, and just thinking about it from a wider, just, just how industries evolve kind of point of view, you know, whether it's cannabis or, or, or any other industry, you know, what, what you see typically is a bunch of people who kind of, you know, get involved early on. They're the early adopters. They, they, they go for the quick wins. They, they, they take a lot of risk, but they're looking to get a return on their investment. And then, a little bit like we are now people suddenly go oh you know it's 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 a bit of a commodity you know where's the where, where's the where, where's the innovation and then you get the next wave of companies that come along and actually start to innovate and start to try and be different because they can't play with the they can't play a volume game with with the big end of town so i think we have to always remember how young this industry actually actually is um and 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 look at what what happens elsewhere and you think that 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 will come but it's probably a bit early i would suggest it is well it's probably timely to ask you guys actually about your industry observations given that um you do sit at the helm of the leading industry uh you know um publications so what 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 are some trends have you got any juicy bits for for mitch and i to to ponder reese do you want to take first swing at that sure um I mean, yeah, sorry, I should, I should say there's, there's, I'd like to think that there's not much that, um, that Mitch and I um, miss, but uh, the reality is there's probably plenty. So I just thought yeah, yeah, yeah. we'd get a yeah, yeah. Well, we've, well, I've, I've, we've recently, I've, yeah, we've recently um, gotten access to a more detailed than usual data set about SASB approvals in Australia that has allowed us to generate some really interesting insights about uh, recent trends in who's getting access to what products. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll be we'll be sort of rolling that content out over the next few weeks, and uh, and it, it it'll be interesting to see sort of uh, people's responses to it. Um, you know, I don't I sorry I don't mean to be too cagey, but I haven't even written a story that's meant to tease the content that we haven't released yet. So um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. No. Um, but but this is, so all I can say is you know, the demographics of patient access in Australia are changing significantly and rapidly. Mm. And we need to start paying attention to that. And, you know, that'll be, that'll be explained um, in, in a few weeks time when we release the data. And the, but the but the there's so much going on, you know, like there's, there's that, there's the, there's, you know, any day now we're expecting the government report on import quality standards and compounding, um, you know, we've got the, the driving law reform stuff that's sort of, you know, boiling away in Victoria and around the country. Um, you know, we've got, uh, you know, the, the Greens uh, introducing Senate legislation in New South Wales about recreational legalisation. Um, like there's never a dull moment. Uh, but I, I, yeah. I think, uh, oh, sorry, go on. I was just thinking as well, I think one story that really um, shook things up recently was uh, the CDA Express Um you know, I, I, I heard a, a, a myriad of different views and I'm not trying to court controversy in mm. raising it, but I just, you know, it was, it was interesting seeing um, that, you know, on the one hand, patient access improved. I see the, the argument, but on the other hand, you know, was the level of 
diligence by the doctors adequate um, and I know that that resulted in a tension between that company and um, the the industry association from which they're now I think not a member um, but yeah, it really just every month on month, there is never a dull moment. So uh, never yeah. a dull moment. Well, it's funny yeah. you say that. Actually, I was gonna. The point I was gonna make was, yeah, number one, we're not short of stories um, ever, <laughs> um, and number two, that yeah, I I, I think as a, as an industry, it's probably a bit fragmented from a kind of PR and lobbying perspective, mm. um, and I think. You know, I, I keep coming back to, you know, the down scheduling of CBD and the way that some companies use that as an opportunity to probably pump their share price. Yeah. Um, whereas others were trying to say, well, no, hold on a second. Let's let's explain the nuances of TGA registration and ARTG and when this actually going to happen. And we're trying to sort of hold back the tide. And I think at some point that the industry sort of perhaps needs to kind of have a serious conversation with itself about how it wants to represent itself to the public and to politicians and to the media um, because it, it feels a little bit fragmented. It feels like everybody, not everybody, but people are trying for their own company advantage. Mm. And that's probably not helping some of those kind of conversations around, you know, um, professionalism and, and, um, it, it, yeah, it doesn't feel as it doesn't feel patient first when you read mm. some flimsy ASX announcement that says something like, "Company A has begun discussions with Company B about a proposed in principle offtake agreement." Where there's just there's absolutely no substance legally or otherwise to that announcement, and it, it, mm. it's it's I think it does generate. I mean, you know, there's an argument to say, well, you know, companies in all sectors um, publicly listed are engaging in. In that kind of puffery but it, it's yeah it, it's I, Look, I, I always just roll the eyes when i read that sort of stuff to my mind the least patient focused thing i've seen since i've been writing about the industry is greg hunt turning up at medicinal cannabis conferences as the health minister talking about the export market um, <laughs> that sums it up to me he's the health minister and he's talking about exports yeah. He's not he's not talking about the people ultimately who he's responsible for his department is responsible for looking after. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's where yeah the industry could do a could could do a better job of speaking with one voice. And I'm not saying that, you know, that's not a criticism of the trade associations or anybody else. It's just acknowledging the fact that, you know, it's a young industry, everyone's trying to get ahead, and sometimes they're kind of clambering over other people to yeah. to, to do it. You know, I've never thought about it that way before, Mark. You're 100% spot on. Why is the health minister mostly talking about export markets for a pharmaceutical sector <laughs> when he should be talking about Australians and their access to medicine? That is quite strange. I think, I think that's, a, that's a symptom of the industry, right? Like, you know, we've been very demand-led. Uh, sorry, we've been very supply-led, like uh, government investment in supporting companies build fixed infrastructure, talking about jobs, talking about, you know, square metre on the canopy, you know, build it and they will come kind of attitude. And that's failed because we've not been focusing, governments have not been focusing on where the demand's going to come from for these huge greenhouses that are meant to bring in all this squillions of dollars of revenue for, for government coffers, right? And we need to address that problem uh, fundamentally because there's no export markets, really. Australia is the third largest export market in the world and we're talking about exporting. So, mm. you know, anyway. I, I, well, I think... Uh, mm. 
Oh, sorry, you sorry I was just going to say the other thing is that Reese has just said I'm 100% right. So I'm going to take that <laughs> and I'm not saying anything else. That's well, done. I'm done. Well, done. that's one out. There's three to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I was, I was just um, thinking that, yeah, the, the emerging area of, because um, we do like to address other alternative medicines on this podcast other than cannabis, but maybe that's the breakthrough that psilocybin needs. If you can just get in a room with Greg Hunt and explain to him that you want to build this big facility and it's purely for exporting magic mushrooms overseas, then, uh, you know, maybe that's, that's the way to do it anyway. Uh, yeah. But, 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 but not, but not to, but, you know, not, not to bag on psychedelic assisted psychotherapy at all, but it's a very different um, economic proposition, right? Mm. Because you could grow the world's supply of psilocybin in a, in a single greenhouse that cultivates enough cannabis to supply Australia with cannabis. Yeah. And, you know, when we're talking about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, we're talking about minuscule doses in terms of volume, you know, uh, that, that are of, of a drug that is in terms of the therapy designed to not be taken chronically, right? Mm. Like, you know, it's, it's a few interventions and then, and then you have an improvement, you go away and you live your life, you know, but yeah. cannabis is like, you know, a medicine that you take all the time, you know, so, so the, the economic opportunity for that is like very different. It's limited. Yeah. And of course, all the infrastructure and well, in the, the personnel required for that type right. of clinical, but yeah. Um, yeah. No. So, okay. So we know about then um, that there's uh, some, some juicy data that will be coming out, mm -hmm. which tells us about changes and in, in the trends of, does it, does it tell us about, I think you might've touched on this, but maybe the different types of products that we're seeing people move towards. I did see that flour continues to surge as, as a, as a preferred cannabis product over oil. Is I only knew it's that Queensland, it's that Queensland push. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 yeah, it's, uh, it's all part of the milieu, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, <laughs> so, I, I, I will just say, and I, I, I don't want to embarrass you, Reese, but Reese was sure. so so excited about this data <laughs> that he actually sent me a Slack message on a Saturday afternoon yeah. and said, "Let me show you. Can I talk you through this data?" And and we went through it, and he was still in his dressing gown at three o'clock mm -hmm. in the afternoon. Oh, he yeah. was so excited he hadn't even got dressed. It yeah. is it is it is exciting. Well, not getting dressed is commonplace here in Melbourne during this <laughs> lockdown. But, um, in saying that, it, it, I'm kind of curious. Where has where is this data? Is this, this is it, was this under stuff, was this obtained it? under FOI from the TGA or is this yes yeah okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's the only way to get SASB okay. data. Um, but but the, yeah. the 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 trick is the trick is in the trick isn't in getting SASB data. The trick is in coding it and laboriously <laughs> spending spending literally a day or two working with Excel sheets that are so big you can't open them in Excel and solving that problem. So good luck. Uh, so what do you use? To, uh, yeah, well, big question. That's a trade secret. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm eagerly awaiting your analyses on those, um, but I'm definitely going to go look at that uh, that little portal a bit later. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> just, no, just have, go for your life. You're more than welcome. Yeah, thank you. Um, I guess we're kind of coming towards the end, but I do know there was one little topic that Martin, I think also expressed he might be interested in chatting about and we are more than happy to chat about it we love chatting about maybe the opioid crisis cannabis that crossover space where we have um we've had actually people coming out recently uh on twitter i know andrew you had a little bit of a to and fro 
with one specific uh, anaesthetist um, um, coming out and talking about the difference or maybe cannabis not being effective at all. Yeah. Which uh, is was very any... You should never get on the bad side of an anaesthetist, especially not one um, who's wheeling you into um, to an operating theatre. But no, this, um, this is somebody who is the head of the um, ANZ College of Anaesthetists. Um, and we just actually um, had a very uh, rigorous exchange of ideas on Twitter. Um, and it was in relation to a piece that Professor Vag, his name, had written in The Guardian about how his organization was not recommending that um, its members prescribe cannabis uh, as a medicine for treating pain. Um, and obviously there is um, just an enormous amount of anecdotal evidence which suggests that um, it can provide um, significant relief for, for some people. Um, so I found that piece interesting. I think I recall a tweet or two from you, Reese. I'm not sure. Did you get involved in my um, my thread with Professor Vag? I, I mean, <laughs> I've engaged with, doc, with, with, with Professor Vag on Twitter before. I'm not sure we were part of the same thread, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, I have perversely, and I don't usually have sympathy for, for people who I disagree with, but I, I kind of, kind of have a bit of sympathy for Vag. And I'll tell you why, because like, like the best evidence that we have about treating long-term chronic pain recommends that people should be treated holistically. It's a, it's a it treated in terms of their biological requirements, their psychological requirements and their social requirements. And, and the evidence suggests that treating those things holistically achieves the best outcome for patients. And the way that that's best coordinated is through specialist pain uh, management clinics and you know where people can come in and be seen by a team of doctors who understand these things and you know and and, and that tends to produce the best outcomes for, for people on average over time so i get like dr bag like you know saying hey you know let's not pay attention to cannabis because we know what the evidence is in well the current evidence we have suggests that shows that this treatment is actually working for people and that's not funded well enough at the moment so i can understand the sort of defensiveness of people when they know that They've got their mindset on this is the solution to people's chronic pain problems, and there's so much noise. You know, you can imagine right, working in pain, uh, in pain management as a doctor, the number of times a day you hear the word cannabis. It would drive you up the wall if you weren't already into cannabis and you had your mindset on what you currently understand is the best treatment for chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And you would, I, 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 yeah, I can imagine feeling very uh, frustrated by all of this. You, know, you spent all this time and energy trying to get governments to focus on pain clinics. And then suddenly, you know, everyone's getting pulled to this one side about cannabis. It doesn't necessarily mean he's correct. Um, and I disagree with Dr. Vag on several points. But you can cut, you know, I agree. I think it's sort of, I, I don't. The one thing I will say is that despite uh, <laughs> the effectiveness of opioids, I mean, and you touched on it, Mitch, uh, there's a reason why opioid has become such a dirty word. I mean, yeah. just the sheer number of adverse events, fatalities. I mean, I yeah, I've just spoken about it on this podcast, but um, being prescribed endone in a um, following some surgery I had earlier this year, it's just horrible. Um, mm -hmm. And I was could not be more excited to be sort of weaning off it over the course of, of a week post surgery. Mm -hmm. So I, I do yes, I have um, sympathy for all those reasons, but I I just cannot understand why pain medicine specialists wouldn't at least be open-minded to something else which doesn't uh, create um, 
a, you know, a dependency, um, constipation, um, in some cases, shallow breathing when people are taking, uh, you know, those respiratory effects that, that it can have in chronic use. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting piece, but, um, I just don't yeah. get, I just don't get why, you know, as you said, Reese, if you're sitting there and, and you're, you're prescribing opiates or whatever you're in the pain clinic, you're prescribing, and then people are saying, you know, cannabis, 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 and why that would make you upset. Wouldn't for me, I would say I would it would spark my interest. I would, I would want to, sure. and, and I know he says his argument is that the research isn't out there, but clearly we now have a couple of products that are, that have been approved. Um, Epidiolex, Sativex, for example, that there is evidence to suggest that this product works, albeit that they weren't for pain. It's not, it's not um, a fantasy. Yeah, yeah. It's not a yeah, fantasy. It's not snake oil. I, think, I, I, I get where you're coming from. I guess like, I, and I'm not, once again, I'm not, you know, a clinician, I don't know how these things work, right? But like, no, no one should be prescribing and no doctor is recommended by the Australian government to prescribe opioids to manage long-term uh, chronic non-cancer pain. It's not indicated. And I don't, think, I don't think it's a binary choice between wanting to prescribe opiates and wanting to prescribe cannabis. I, I suspect, and I don't know this for sure, but I suspect the pain management field is trying to move away from prescription medicines in general because no prescription medicines have really been any good for managing chronic pain for all of human history. And what is more effective seems to be, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, counseling, you know, social integration, physiotherapy, those other kinds of therapies. So like, I mean, personally though, if I was in that scenario and you had a prescription medicine that had a very good risk profile like cannabis does that has very few side effects like cannabis does that may work for chronic pain you would give it a go i would give it a go but you know of course so i would I, say that because i'm a cannabis person not a i was just gonna person. say i think i've made i've made two points here and it comes back to that thing about you know the industry is full of passionate people who you know see see what good this can do for, for for patients and 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 society and the economy and everything else. Most people don't think like that. Most doctors don't really care. Um, and you know, you've got you've you've got a bunch of clinicians who are who are you know clearly of of kind of they get it and they'll they'll be really supportive. But but most are you know very busy and probably borderline disinterested to be honest. So 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 I think I kind of. Yeah, he, he's he's annoying, and and he's obviously got a voice. But but I, I still think most people are probably ambivalent. Most most GPs are probably ambivalent. Yeah. The other point I'd make is just um, interesting that there's some more data that we're going to publish um, tomorrow or Thursday that will be in the newsletter actually around evidence of um, opioid use declining as medicinal cannabis increases. So there was, you know, there were, there was some stuff from Amiria and um, MedLab Clinical a, a few weeks ago, there's more coming. Um, so I think that's gonna, that's gonna help as we've talked about, you know, it all comes down to research and evidence in the end. And, and there's more of that that we're gonna publish. Now that's yeah, a feel good story. That, that's, yeah. I, I look forward to reading that. And I imagine there'll be some interesting data about um, yeah, the pain indications uh, specifically in, in that bigger data piece that um, that Reese has got up his sleeve, which uh, we eagerly await. Um, did you have any more questions, which I'm mindful we've um, taken more than an hour, <laughs> Martin and Reese's time. I, I, 
I'm 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 getting I'm getting panicked messages from my son because uh, he's invited he's invited us for dinner, which is a rare enough occurrence in itself. Yeah, well, we will let you get to that, man. I'm really gonna have to go and eat it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's fair cool. enough. <laughs> we're we're just trying to wrap you into our world where nobody's allowed to leave home at all, and exactly. So thank you both so much for um. For your time for your insights um we just love chatting with both of you so really cannot thank you enough for for joining us for for the podcast and i'm sure at some point mitch and i are gonna try and uh, steal you back on for another episode or jump on yours yeah well, <laughs> both, both, both sound good in yeah, the cannabis fantastic, guys. Yeah. appreciate it right. and must remind everyone to uh obviously follow and subscribe we have to do that for altmed but also definitely on cannabis they've got some incredible content some unique content um definitely get on there as a what is it the uh the premium subscription Pre oh yes a premium membership that's what oh. you want <laughs> beautiful and of course to follow reese cohen on on twitter is that yep. is that is that what we want yep at reese cohen, <laughs> at reese cohen. there's no that's other reese cohen that's the, probably my my two mate two main news sources outside mm. Our own would be, uh, yeah, cannabis and Reese Cohen's Twitter. <laughs> so um, definitely get it amongst that if you're interested in the space within Australia and beyond. So uh, yeah. enjoy dinner, Martin. And we'll thank um, you very much. Uh, until we'll until next time, we'll uh, yeah take care, guys. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Thank Martin. you. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. Bye.